0: Welcome to True Crime Broads. This is Crystal and Renee, and thank you for joining us today. Before we get started, and we have an amazing guest, by the way, you're going to love this episode. Before we get started, though, we were going to touch on a couple of things, and we're going to start off by reading a review, and it was a five-star review, and the name of the person who wrote it is C-F-E-Y-J-A-23, And the title is Excellent Podcast, Five Stars. Crystal and Renee are so down-to-earth and relatable. Their interview style is organic, and they ask the right questions. It's obvious that Crystal and Renee care care very much about the Missy Beavers case and the other cases that they have covered. Listening is like sitting at a table and having a nice cup of coffee chatting with them. Well, thank you so much for that wonderful review. We really appreciate it. And uh, Renee, did you have anything you wanted to add before we invite our guest
1: on? Um, I'll just send a, tell a reminder that we're going to do our in-person meeting for all of the local people. It's going to be November 2nd. It's on a Thursday and we're going to do it at a different location. The event is um, on our true crime broads page. So it has the address and all that. So if you wanted to attend, that's where you find it.
0: And Renee is having these in person events down in Ellis County where she lives. And as those of you probably know, that's where the Missy Beavers case took place. And that's the case they'll be discussing. Um, okay, so um, today we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Kathy Kleiner Rubin. And she has a new book out called A Light in the Dark Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. She has been through a lot of challenges in her life. Oh, gosh, yes. But I think that obviously the most insane and most public one was her horrible, horrible attack by Ted Bundy. And she's here today to tell us some more about that and about her recovery and how she's doing now. So we're looking forward to having Kathy on. So stick with us. And after the break, we'll have her on immediately. Thanks for joining us on True Crime Broads. Ooh, let's go.
1: Huh, huh, yeah, let's go. Yeah. True Crime
0: Broads with Crystal and Renee. Welcome back to True Crime Broads. We are so excited about today's guest. She has a brand new book out. Her name is Kathy Kleiner Rubin. And her book is called A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. I know a lot of our true crime listeners have been invested in the Ted Bundy case for years and years, including Renee and myself. So we are just thrilled to have Kathy on today to tell her harrowing story. And her book is very uplifting. And we're so excited to have you here, Kathy. Thanks for joining us on True Crime Broads.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So, you have the most amazing story in the world. I can't believe that you actually were in the same room with Ted Bundy. Are are you comfortable telling the story? I know it can't be, uh, this can't be easy.
2: I'm okay telling it. Actually, every time I talk and tell my story, it helps to heal me.
0: Oh, good. That is good. So you were, how old were you um, when this horrible incident occurred? And what was the name of your university?
2: I was 20 years old and it was at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida.
0: Wow, that's young. And you were in a sorority there?
2: Yes, I was in the Kyle Omega sorority house. I was living there.
0: And and that horrible Ted Bundy, if, you know, I remember learning about him in, in high school from my psychology teacher. She was telling us that he had a type. He generally went after very young women with long, dark hair. Did you fit that description at the time? No, oh, I had curly,
2: curly brown hair, short.
0: Well, you know, what's interesting is... If I'm understanding your story correctly, I'll let you tell it, of course. But I think you were in a room with several women that were attacked by him or in a house.
2: Yes, he uh, he broke in Well, he came in the back door of the house and picked up some firewood that was next to the back door for our fireplace. And he came through the house and he came up the stairs. And the first room he got to was Margaret Bowman. He killed her, attacked her, and put the sheets up close to her face so it looked like she was sleeping. He then walked across the hall to Lisa Levy's room. Now, she had blonde hair, and Margaret Bowman had brown hair, but I think he was like in a frenzy. I don't think he cared what the women looked like. He was just in the house, and he hadn't killed for a while, so he attacked Lisa Levy And attacked her and strangled her and beat her with the same log as Margaret. And he also bit her. And that turned out to be like a fingerprint, because the uh, the detectives could use that with his teeth impressions and find out exactly it, it was him that that killed them.
1: Wow. That is unbelievable.
0: I remember that so well at the time that they were able to trace that bite mark back to him. That's Mm -hmm. horrible. Um, So how many women, how many young women lost their lives in your sorority house that night?
2: There were two. There was Margaret and Lisa. And he walked across the hall. We were on the second floor of our bedroom and we faced the back of the house, which was the parking lot. And our curtains were always open because we, uh, we held plants on the curtain rods. So mm-hmm. our curtains were always open. He opened the door to our bedroom, which wasn't locked. Now there's two of us in the bedroom. I'm asleep on one side in a twin bed. And my roommate was on the other side in a twin bed. So it was dark in there and we had a little footlocker between our beds and someone I heard tripped over the footlocker and made noise enough to wake me up. And now I'm awake and I'm looking to the side of my bed and there's a figure of someone standing there. It was dark and I couldn't tell any details or anything about him. But I did see him raise his arm up over his head And he ended up, it was the same fireplace wood that he had killed Margaret and Lisa with. And he held that in his hand and it slapped it so hard on my face that he tore my cheek open. I almost bit my tongue off. My chin was shattered and my um, jaw was broken in three places.
1: Mm, Horrible. Horrifying. What... We
0: are so sorry that you had those horrible injuries. I can't even imagine how much in shock you were to even know someone who was in your house, but then to have them attack you in that way.
2: um, What happened next? The next thing I remember was uh, my roommate was in her bed making noise because she heard him attacking me. And she made noise. So he went across the room, tripped over that little footlocker again and went and hit her with the same log that he hit us with. He was now hearing me. I thought I was screaming and yelling, but all I was making was gurgling sounds since my tongue was almost bit off and the cheeks are broken. So he came back over on my side of the room. And in my bed, I made myself as small as I could, a little ball, just I thought if he couldn't see me, he wouldn't hit me but that didn't last. So again, I saw him next to my bed, rising, raising his arm up over his head. And then all of a sudden, there was a bright light in the room. It shone right in our room and was a bright bright white light. And he sees that and he didn't know what it was. And what it was was a car and it were bringing home a sorority sister late at night and the shark, Car lights is what shone into the second floor and into our bedroom.
0: Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. And
2: that spooked him enough for him to run out the door. Wow. And then the light got dark again. And I was still scrunched in a little ball, hoping that he wasn't going to come back and hit me. Right.
0: That's unbelievable. How how did authorities come to you how did you get medical attention did the sorority sister enter the house that just got dropped off
2: there there she did but my roommate got out of bed and walked down the hallway looking for some help and when they saw one of the sisters they couldn't tell how dark how hurt she was because the lights had been turned off in the highway in the hallway so they led her back to our room and turn on the lights and that's when they saw me and i had warm blood all over my face cuz i was touching it and it was sticky and then i felt my head like exploding with knives and and it was just horrible and i'm sitting up in my bed they called 911 and then it seemed like forever but right away the police officer came and he was right at the head of my bed saying it's okay honey we're going to take care of you and then the paramedics came and they started to take care of me and tend to my wounds. And one of the paramedics said, you're okay, you've been shot in the face because my cheek was so wide open, but we're gonna take care of you. And now I'm thinking, well, I was hit with a log and now I was shot in the face. And I think I passed out for a few minutes, but they, the paramedics put me on a gurney and carried me out the front door, which was down a wooden staircase. And as I got to the front door, I was I was freezing cold. It was like 30 degrees and misty out. And all the cars were there, and the police department lights and the fire lights and the ambulance lights. And everyone was there as they were taking me out of the on the sidewalk. And the radios were squawking and the police were talking and everyone, you know, on the radios. And for a minute, as I'm being taken out, I feel like I'm at a carnival all the lights were flashing and i heard the radios and i thought there were people yelling and talking to each other and i looked down the um the main street of the festival and i could even see people and i saw the ferris wheel and i said i'm in a circus or a festival and they're like it's okay yes you are we're gonna take care of you but we're gonna put you in the ambulance first So they put me in the ambulance and the next thing I remember was I, I was in the hospital. What
0: was your recovery like? I mean, I'm assuming with a broken jaw and everything you just described that that was a long journey to recover.
2: Yes, it was. And one of the things, when I left the hospital, I was there for about a week in Tallahassee. One of the things was that the, um, police officer taking us home my mother and I my brother and my sister they stopped in front of the Kai Omega house and I'm like okay what are you doing and my mouth is wired shut my head is bandaged all I could see was slits in my eyes and I couldn't talk and I'm like okay what are we doing here in my head and they said we want you to go in and see if anything was missing from your room so if we find something with him we know it he was in the Chi Omega house and I didn't want to go up, but an officer took me by, hand, by my arms and walked me up my stairs, which were very hard to get through. And I turned the corner and saw Margaret's room with uh, yellow tape and then they, I saw Lisa's room with yellow tape and the next room was mine and it had yellow tape. Policemen lifted up. And I walked into the room and they said, now, look at your dresser. Is anything missing? And I couldn't even remember what was on the dresser. So I didn't know if it was missing or not. And the next thing I do, my eyes follow the wall down and I see my desk and I see the footboard of my twin bed and in the middle of the bed were these brown stains. That was my blood. And they wrapped up my beautiful bedspread I had just picked out. Took me forever to pick it out. And it was wrapped up just in a ball. And that was full of blood as well. And I looked there and I stood at my side of the bed and I saw the blood on the walls. And I said, this is what happened. It happened here. I know what happened now. Now I don't have to think about it and try to remember it. Because this is right in my face and right in my head. So after that, I told the police that I wanted to leave now, and they took me back down the stairs and drove me to the airport where my parents lived in Miami, and that's where I did my recuperation. Unreal. So
0: after that, did police talk to you about, I'm assuming they talked to you about the attack to see if you remembered anything, and how long... Second part of that question is, how long after that did they start to connect Ted Bundy to your attack and these murders in your house?
2: Well, the first question, what what was the first question? I'm sorry. I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> it was how, did, did the police start questioning you right away about what yes. happened?
2: Yes, I was in my hospital room, like I said, for about a week, and I was all bandaged. And they kept asking me, um, Do you know him? Did you know him? Did you see him? When the lights shone up, did you know him? And all these questions. And all I could do with clenched feet, uh, teeth that were wired shut, right. is go, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I knew him, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, what they finally did is hypnotize me in the hospital. And by doing that, they asked me questions that i didn't know the answers for but they said i did answer questions and as i thought about it i remembered retelling the story of the attack and i knew it happened and i had no questions in my head cuz i could hear myself talking and i heard him open the door in the room and the wa- the door swishing against the carpet and then i heard him when he tripped into the over the Foot locker and then I remembered everything else that happened so that was realize? them asking me what happened and as far as uh, Bundy goes it was about two weeks after the attack that he was caught in Pensacola one of the things while I was recuperating was um the Miami Herald a big newspaper the reporters told my name and my address that I lived in Miami and this, was, this wasn't nice of them, and it put me in danger because really anyone did. could come find me now. And there yeah. was a police car outside our door, and an officer sat at a chair by the front door. So after about two weeks, they caught Bundy in Tallahassee. I mean, I'm sorry, in Pensacola, and they didn't know who he was. He had multiple uh, IDs on him because he stole them when he first Came to Tallahassee, stole IDs, so the police kind of put them together, and they didn't have uh, computers back then, so it wasn't easy for them to um, mark him as this is Ted Bundy. But he finally said who he was, and the police took him back to Tallahassee, and he was in jail there, in prison there for um, a number of years, <laughs> but. Um, that was why they caught him, how they caught him. Oh, thank God.
0: He was really on a mission to kill as many people as he could. What a nightmare. I'm so sorry that you got attacked by this person. And what a miracle that those car lights sh- shined into your window right then, or you would very possibly not be here talking to us today. That is I it's terrifying. That true. That's just terrifying.
1: And the other roommate that um, was in your room, was, did she live as well?
2: Yes, she was attacked in the face with the same wood. He just carried that wood out with him. And when he ran, he still had that oak log in his hand. But that's uh, the, the girl that came home late from the date that night was turning the hallway from the rec room and saw him running down the stairs and out the front door.
1: Oh my so gosh. she did,
2: a, she got a she side, side glimpse of him and helped make the uh, portrait of what he looked like for, um, and it was pretty good because it looked pretty much like him, but they used that also in court to show that um, he was in the house.
1: Good. It's interesting that he didn't uh, come more prepared that he got wood from the, you know, from the the uh, house there. It, you know what I mean? He didn't come like with a rope or to strangle it. Somebody, he he got his weapon there.
2: Yes. I think he was in a frenzy. Like I said, he hadn't killed in, you know, a couple of weeks. And he was all upset. And he was at a um a bar that was right next to the sorority house. Uh, and we think he saw the girls. And Margaret had long brown hair. And Lisa did. And she had blonde hair. But we think he saw them come in the back door. And the door, the combination lock was just broken and you could type in the number and it would open up, but then it didn't close all the way. So I think it was kind of impromptu that he was going to go into the sorority house. Like I said, I think he was just in a frenzy. And when he picked up that log, I don't think he had any attention of not using it to whoever he found. Yeah. Goodness.
1: How scary.
0: Yeah. He is one of the of our time, he's gotta be the one of the worst criminals. A nightmare <laughs> that we've even heard of. Yeah. Unbelievable. Ted Bundy. What now? I know you had a long physical um recovery. What was it like yeah. for you emotionally, psychologically after this horrendous um, attack?
2: Physically it took a while because my mouth had to be broken again the when it was shut. In Tallahassee, it wasn't lined up correctly. So after three weeks in Miami, I had to have my jaw rebroken and rewired shut. And this whole process took about nine weeks for um, the healing to come through. And while I was at home, I wasn't afraid, but it felt like I had this dark black cape around me and just this ugly black mass. And I wanted to get better. I didn't want to live having this with me and on me and behind me. So in my mind, way off in the distance, I saw a little island and the island had one palm tree and one sand chair sitting on it. I could barely see it because it was so far away. And I took baby steps to get to my island. And as I did, this black mass was baby steps behind me. And I kept going. It took it took weeks of baby steps for me to reach that island. And when I did, I sat down and put my toes in the sand and I looked in front of me and that black mass was completely gone. I couldn't see anything negative in front of me. So that's one way I um, overcame my fear of, of being um, that that afraid that I wanted to leave the house again, but I knew I could. But the other thing was, I was afraid of men and I wasn't afraid they attacked me. I just was uncomfortable being around them. So after, uh, after I got my wa- mouth wired shut, I was afraid of men. So I went to work at a lumber yard in Miami and I figured, where am I going to see the most men at any time all day long than at the lumber yard. And after about three weeks, I decided I didn't need this anymore. You know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of men like that. So I left, but I learned that there's a lot of cute construction workers that go into lumber yards. So that helped make it easier for me to uh, overcome that.
0: Man, you did some great things to help yourself get better psychologically.
1: I don't know a lot of people that could have done that.
2: Yeah. A That's lot of people amazing. Would have,
1: Yeah. It would, it's, it's gotta be hard. You did a good job. Thank you. I never
2: had a therapist because my mom was Cuban and at home, we just didn't talk to people about our problems. We just dealt with them.
1: So at that
2: point, you know, I didn't have therapy. I kind of did it on my own, not knowing what I was doing, but knowing how to feel and how to get better. Yeah, that's awesome. Were you ever able to go back to college? No, my life took a different, a different turn. And that happened in January of seventy eight. And in June of seventy eight, I I um got married. Oh, okay.
1: Yes. I can imagine I wouldn't have wanted to go back.
0: And you yeah. started a whole new life, that's awesome, and got out of that area.
2: Right? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, I great. stayed in Miami and I moved up to Fort Lauderdale and, and Boca Raton on the east coast of Florida. So
1: let's talk about the arrest of Ted Bundy.
2: He was arrested, like I said, in Pensacola and taken to, uh, taken to Tallahassee. And they didn't know for sure it was him until they could ad- identify him. And then the marks on the bites helped clarify it, that it was really him. And he, the sheriff was Ken Casares, and he was going to make sure that Bundy was not going to break out of any prison that he was in. So the process um, was very, very tight. The security around him. And then, as the months went on, at the uh, in the end of '78, I was uh, had a subpoena to um, go to the deposition. And uh, it was a large conference room with a large table, and the defense attorneys were on one side, and the prosecution attorneys on the other side. I sat at the head, and when I looked down, Bundy was at the other end of the table. Oh. And I looked at him, and I was—I felt mean. I didn't feel scared or anything. I just felt mean. Yeah, I could understand <laughs> and, that. Um, so the prosecution and the defense were both asking me questions, and I don't know what they asked, and I don't remember what I said, because all I did was stare him down. And that was the first time I saw Bundy in a court. And the second time was I was summoned for a grand jury testimony. So I was taken down to the table. I sat at the head and he sat at the other head of the table. And I just I, I felt sorry for him this time. I just felt sorry. And he looked like he, we were wasting his time. And he sat there and he had the light blue uh, jacket on and a white shirt. And he was just sitting with his chin in his hands and just kind of looking me down and i just i just felt sorry for him it was like he's sick he really is sick and he can't be helped in my mind it was just a matter of um just convicting him so when it was time for the trial to come up i was one of the witnesses and i was called to the witness stand and sworn in and as i sat there looked around the room and there was a table with the prosecution defense defense on another table. And right to them was Ted Bundy sitting there again, looking at me. And I just stared him down. Again, I don't remember many questions or many of my answers. I was just, I wasn't afraid now. I wasn't mad now. I felt sorry for him because this was it. This was going to be a conviction for him and he was going to die. I just knew it. So I do remember one of the questions that the defense asked me, and I wanted to put Bundy down so bad. I wanted to help convict him. And their question was, is this the man you saw in your room that night that allegedly beat you? And I cried because I had to say, I don't know. Oh, I, never I never saw, saw his, his face. face. And I couldn't tell if it was him or not. And I felt like I let everything but down, everybody down, because I couldn't help convict him. And that was the last time I saw him. Mm, that had to be hard. Wow. It, it, yeah, it was um, It was hard to see him. And then I rationalized in my head. I was mad. And then I felt sorry for him. Then I knew he was sick. So it's kind of a progression of how I, I thought of him.
0: Right. It's unbelievable what you've been through. And um, what made you decide to write this book? It's so good. We were so excited to get a copy.
2: I, um, I was, I call myself a serial survivor. When I was 13, I was diagnosed with lupus. And it was a lupus. I was in the hospital for three months. And they didn't really know what was wrong with me. They had never thought of lupus as a disease. And it was never known back in 78. I mean, back in 71, that it was a disease of younger people. So they sent sent myself home and told my parents just to make me comfortable because they didn't know how much longer I had. And there was a Cuban doctor who gave me experimental chemo. My parents agreed. And I took chemo for about six months. And first or second chemo, I lost my hair. I lost all my hair. I was bald. Now I'm going into seventh grade. And I'm bald and no one could come in and I couldn't go out because I didn't want to get sick. So I would look out the window and see the kids playing and no one could come in and play. My parents worked, so I was home alone all day and hurting. I was very sick and I would go lay down in my bed most of the day and then get up just before my parents came home. I would put my shorts on and my flip flops and I'd go sit in the living room. How was your day, Kathy? Oh, fine. I just, you know, watching TV all day. I didn't want them to know how sick I had been. So it was so lonely. One time I um, picked up the line and I dialed zero on the phone just because I wanted to hear someone else's voice. And sometimes they would talk to me and mostly they said they couldn't talk. They were busy. But that was just a reach out to uh, a human being that I could talk to. And after about six months of the chemo, they said I was better. So I went, uh, mama had never let me out of the house. So I put a scarf on and one day mom let me go to church. So we sat in the back of the um, church and it was so much fun just being out. And then we got home and not two weeks later, I caught shingles. So now I'm at home and my face is covered in shingles down to my neck. And it was just, it was just a bad time for me. And this made me think and know that I'm not going to be in seventh grade and home alone and shingles. And this, this just wasn't right. And I thought, well, I'm going to get through this. And slowly and slowly, I got better until finally in eighth grade, I could go to school. But I didn't nobody in eighth grade. No one knew me because I'd been home alone and out, couldn't go out. So, um it was a bad year. And when I finally made it to high school, I was excited because I wanted to know um, what everyone was doing and what they were knowing. And it was just a fun time for me. So in high school, I joined theater group, the drama department. And I knew I made friends and lifelong friends. I actually even met my husband because I got divorced from my first husband. And we got married a long time after that, but we were good friends in high school. And then it was time for graduation. And I was thinking what school to go to. And I found out that Florida State University was as far away from Miami where my parents lived and still get in-state tuition. So that was my big goal (laughs) is to go to Florida State because I could, my parents could afford it. amazing. We also
0: know that you have survived. We want to leave some things for people to read in the book, but, (laughs) but it does, I know you've survived some other illnesses as well, and you are definitely a survivor. Do you want to tell us a little bit more or do you want to save some for the book?
2: (laughs) Well, I'll just say that, um, I got better for many years. Um, I had a child when I was, when in 1981, I, um, I got married in '78, and he and got divorced when Mikey was two. So, um, but Mikey's my best joy. Um, With lupus, you're told not to have children as a complication, and not to go out in the sun. That could cause the lupus to come back and attack you again. So I had my beautiful son, and I was I was working at a bank. And I'll say that story. <laughs> yes,
0: but that's um, a that's I'll an amazing story that. too.
2: Um. So then I was uh, married again, um, and it was ten years before Bundy got electrocuted because he kept getting stays of execution from certain judges, and um, they kept giving him stays. And I just thought it wasn't right and it wasn't fair because Margaret and Lisa didn't get stays. Right. right, They didn't get stays for their life, so that really bummed me out, and it was very upsetting over the ten years. But he, he was executed in January of nineteen eighty nine, and the the um, execution, my parents and I were both asked if we wanted to join. Um, be present at the execution and we both said no it was too much for my parents and I just didn't want to give him any more of my time I was over him and he had no place in my life anymore and I didn't want to bring him back up and in in a case like that so I remember the day he it was January 24th 1989 I remember vividly that when he was electrocuted we were told first thing in the morning that he was finally put to death and i sat on my sofa with my husband and i cried and i wailed and i wasn't crying for me i was crying for margaret and for lisa and for all the other victims that bundy killed it just it just made me mad that he he got to go on and live that long And that at the end, when they were putting him ready to um, execute him, he was crying and saying, please don't execute me. I'll tell you more stuff. And I was thinking that's probably the last words the girl said as he was attacking him and killing him. Please don't kill me. Yeah. I found that very ironic. Right. So after after, uh, I cried for a bit, my husband was holding me and I took a deep breath. And I said, okay, I'm hungry. Let's go to breakfast. So that's that was the end of the execution for me.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I remember that day so well. I do and too. And na- now looking back on it, thinking about you is so interesting. Um, well, Kathy, thank you so much for being on our show. We have known about you for years and been following you. And we're just so happy to see you healthy and happy now. And thank you.
1: Your inspiration to other people. Yeah,
0: and and everybody listening, please pick up a copy of her new book. It's called A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. And it's by Kathy Kleiner Rubin. And she also has a co-author, Emily LeBeau-Lajussi. Am I saying that right?
2: It's like, Casey. Oh, look, Casey. I was way off. Okay.
0: Yeah. She's yeah. nice. We got to talk to her a little bit before we recorded. All right. Well, thanks again, Kathy. And we hope to have you back on again sometime.
2: I would be more than happy to come back on. Thank you, lady. Thanks, Kathy. Thank talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to True Crime Broads. We would also love to see you on our social media. We
1: have an Instagram page called True Crime Broads. We also have a Facebook page called True Crime Broads, and then we also have a group which is called True Crime Broads, Missy Beaver's Case Discussion Group. And if you can, please uh, leave us a five-star review. We are needing some new ones. Yes, you can leave five stars on Spotify if you think we deserve it. And also on Apple, you
0: can also leave five stars and leave a written review if you'd like to. So thanks again for listening to True Crime Broads.